for sure. 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 Welcome to another episode of For Sure, a 200-foot podcast. I'm Peter. And I'm the surprised, questioning, and now ultimately becoming more philosophical, Jay. Why do you think, oh. I'm, the, why do you think I'm like that, Peter? Uh, I think because our podcast has just reached 40, yep. and you are having a, a midlife crisis. Yep, I wanted this to, uh, I mean, I feel like moving, I, I, I wish I would have thought of this construct when we started this podcast, because I feel like it would have been a little nugget to always have built into a show for us to just be obnoxious about but this is our zetterberg episode yay mm. and sad, sadly we're gonna be playing more after this but he won't be this is, <laughs> this is depressing really fast but no peter the i was wondering it, it's it's weird to to reinvent yourself in in these in these uh, uncertain times but just if you needed another example of why you can continue to look at the sky and be like really this is what's going to happen uh, as of this recording, which according to my clock on this computer, which I'm talking to you through, 1243 p.m. Saturday, January 19th, Peter, mm-hmm. and, I'm, and you, you're probably going to hate me for saying it like this, but your New York Islanders are the number one in the Metropolitan. How do you... How do you feel about this? What is happening? Is it the Metropolitan or the Atlantic? I don't know. I don't care. They're first. <laughs> they are first. How did this happen, Peter? It is. It it, it is the Metro. Um, they they are not my team. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and and here's how you could tell because, because you're we have learned mad. you are already no mad. we have we have learned that I am fan kryptonite because <laughs> I leave the Islanders fandom after. 20-something years of mostly mediocrity and frustration. And I go to the Red Wings, who have been in the playoffs forever. And shortly after that happens, the Red Wings... uh, Shortly after that happens, uh, Nicholas Lidstrom retires. Uh, The Red Wings miss the playoffs for the first time, like, a little bit later. And now the Islanders are resurgent. So apparently... If any team wants to put a hex on another team, they just need to hire me to become a fan of that team. So, uh, whoa. Uh, so anyway, I mean, this is this is crazy. So <laughs> it's okay. Because, it's okay to not yeah. know what to say, Pete. It's it's no, because you, these... you know because here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yeah. So <laughs> most years, there's a team or two that is either way better than people expected or way worse than people expected. And we've seen in the past that it can be fluky, right? The uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, even when they were winning Stanley Cups, there's been times where they were, it looked like, oh, they might not even make the playoffs this year. Um, you know, there's been other examples of teams that we thought were going to be really good. They were going to take the next step and they didn't. Um, and so the question always is, is, is this just a fluke? You know, at this point, like whenever this point is where we're talking about a team, is it just luck? Is it just a small sample size issue? And I think, 
having gotten past the halfway point of the season, I think we're far enough to say that the Islanders play this year is not some type of luck. It's not some type of fluke. There is something going on here. Um, my my brother, who is on Twitter at ND Red Eagle, he had a couple of stats that I thought were interesting that he posted last night. Um, so this season, the Islanders have now shut out San Jose 4-0, to Toronto 4-0, to Washington 2-0, to and they've beaten Tampa Bay 5-1. to So it's not like they're rolling over bad teams and then getting smoked by the quote-unquote real, actual good teams. Um, the other thing that he said that I, the other thing that he posted that I thought was interesting is in turn, like with back to back games, because obviously that's hard for anybody. And so in the seven games that the Islanders have played this season after playing the day prior, they have outscored their opponent 27 to six. And five of the seven teams that they played did not play the day before. And the other two that did play the day before were Toronto and the Lightning. So, like I said, this is, this doesn't seem like it's a fluke. So, Jay, what do you think is going on in Brooklyn slash Nassau slash the greater New York metropolitan area? I was, I was going to ask you because, like, maybe I, I like – you know how I like to be very supernatural and, and otherworldly when it comes to explaining things on this podcast. So I have to say whatever spaceship that crashed into the Nassau Coliseum has to ha- – like, think of it like the hat that landed on Frosty's head. There must have been some magic in that spaceship that crashed in in uh in into the coliseum because i mean what like they say correlation is causation every single time right <laughs> yeah uh so uh yeah I, I like to think that something having to do with playing in their in their old uh, uh hangout um i don't know it's 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 tough to nail down i mean yes we're obviously tapped doing tap tip tap dancing around the departure of Tavares, which it's like, okay, so like when you remove, you know, I'm not saying that it's always best to get rid of your best player. (laughs) That's certainly not what I'm saying, but it is interesting to see like in the history of sports, there has been a, a enough evidence to show that when a massive amount of, uh, production and skill departs a team, that team either, finds a way to reinvent itself to compete or they have to find a new way to get back to where they're competing. So I like to think that this is the, this is the former, I think not having Tavares to lean on, right? Like I think that's in, and, and you have a, a now tremendous Stanley cup winning coach in trots who is, you know, again, the most recent thing uh, that he can add to his uh, resume right now on this revenge tour <laughs> is that he, yeah. that he shuts out the defending champs. And that's not nothing. I think you you pretty much nail it on the head there. It's it's not like you know, hey, they're able to take care of their business against comparable teams, but then just kind of get their teeth kicked in when they play teams of substance. Like they are actually balancing how you're able to get from, you know, yeah. Like, this is something that the Red Wings suffer from, and we we say, and I think it's something that they've suffered from for the last ten years. It's about playing to your competition, and. The Islanders are being very uh, consistent in their play, regardless of who they're playing, and that's that's something I obviously every team wants and and, and desperately needs. So, yeah, I think I think the departure of of Tavares is probably your most glaring thing. But think about the system that Trotz has them playing in. Think about the the drive that these players now have, because I'm sure that 
just like anybody else in, in, in the professional sports realm, right? The media talks. People talk, right? People write people mm-hmm. off. Organizations get be like, yeah, you know, they're probably going to take a step back this year. You know, it's just the way these things go. So when people listen to that, they can obviously make a decision to buy into it or reject it. And it looks like the Isles are rejecting it. Yeah, it's it's funny the uh, <laughs> when you were saying about people talking, it made me think of like like the classic New York sports talk radio call-in guests. <laughs> it's like, yo, yo, this is Chris from Brooklyn. I want to, uh, I want to ask you about uh, the Islanders. So, so what's up with that? I'll take my answer off the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, like, uh, man, just you know, imagine if Francesa was like even remotely interested in in what's going on with the Islanders. He'd be like, why would you do that? Why, yeah. would, why would you just call and hang out? I'm not. Um, so, 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 so while you're talking, I was I was looking up some stuff, and here's something interesting that the okay, so the Islanders are are plus twenty three goal differential, right? So right now there are twenty eight wins, fifteen losses, four uh, overtime losses for uh, a total of sixty points, right? So they're they're one point up on Columbus, one point up on. Washington. So obviously the top of the Metro is really tight right now. Um, but then the Rangers are the next, uh, well, actually Pittsburgh is in the wild card right now with 58. But then after that in the Metro, the next team is the Rangers with 47 devils have 43, you know, so right now, I mean, as long as they don't go on an extended losing streak, it looks like the, the Islanders chances of making the playoffs are, are pretty darn good. Um, but while I was looking, this is, here's a really interesting stat for you. That's, all the teams right now that are currently in a playoff spot in the Eastern Conference, they all have positive goal differentials, right? The lowest one is Montreal with plus seven. Every other team in the conference has a negative goal differential. I just thought that was weird. Now, yeah. it's even weirder out West where I think two of the teams, I think the two wild card teams, yeah, the two wild card teams right now, Dallas and Vancouver, have a negative goal differential. Not only that, it's a, Vancouver has a noticeable goal differential. Yes. So it's, yeah. it is, uh, gosh, I'm just so mad that we are in the East. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry, it's, oh, like, yeah. it's that I mean, last it's, crying, uh... you know, it's like we're you're like, <laughs> oh, man, it's just, yeah. you, just, you just wish this never happened. Uh, so. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think it, it shows that, you know, that number one, that the team is able to do it for this long this season, talking about the Islanders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that the team is able to win these games and, and not only win, but win in convincing fashion. I mean, did you, I don't know if you got a chance to see, see the, um, the the Toronto Islanders game, but I mean the Islanders dominated. Like they they shut them down. It wasn't it, it wasn't a fluke that they won four or nothing. It was it, it wasn't one of those games where like the score didn't really dictate you know the 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 play. And so obviously I think you have to give a lot of credit to, to Barry Trotz. Um, last night uh, while we're recording this last night, the, the Islanders beat Washington. And I read in the post game comments that they asked Nicholas Backstrom about, uh, you know, the game. And they asked him, basically Backstrom said that the Islanders are playing exact same systems that Washington used to have. So, you know, Trotz has instilled basically the exact same systems that he did with Washington, obviously with different personnel. Um, and, Backstrom basically said that the Islanders just executed better last night. Um, and, and I thought it was interesting that you can play a team and 
obviously most of Washington was on the team last year or in the past. So they know what system, like they know what the Islanders are doing and they still weren't able to overcome it. They still weren't able to, uh, to win the game. So I thought that was interesting. And the one thing I really wanted to to mention, because I, I'm curious to see what you think about this, because we haven't talked about this idea yet. Okay. Um, last year we had the Vegas golden Knights whom, Nobody thought was going to make the playoffs. Most people thought they were going to finish in the bottom of the league. Obviously, they didn't. They went all the way to the Stanley Cup finals and gave Washington a pretty good run for their money in the final. And one of the one of the reasons that people were saying that the Vegas Golden Knights had such a good year last year was the idea that every player on that team had been somehow, quote-unquote, rejected from their previous team. Obviously, that's kind of being hyperbolic, but you get the idea that they they had been cast off, in a way, from their former team, and the idea was that you have an entire group of people that have a chip on their shoulder. So whoever they play, there's like, we need to win this for Marcia So. We need to win this, you know, for William Carlson. We need to, you know, we need to go out and do that. And I'm not saying that that's the only reason. I'm not even saying that that's the, the majority of the reason. I'm saying it seems like it possible. It seems possible. And this year you have a potential repeat of that, but in one player rejecting the team instead of teams rejecting a player is that you have John Tavares leaving and going to Toronto, which even if the players I like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the players are like, Oh, screw that guy. I hate him now. But they have to feel something of that. They have to feel like, okay, he's left us. We're going to band together and we are going to prove that we are more than just the New York John Tavares's. Do you, do you think there's anything to that or do you think I'm off base? No, I think that was, I mean, I, the, that was the thought that I had about Vegas last year in the first place. I, I wasn't, I didn't think about it in the way that you were thinking. I was just thinking that because the team had, a player from pretty much every team that I mean that player brought every other team's playbook and they all just were able to study very, very intently yeah. and just able to break down their system. But I do like that. Uh, I, I do like what you said a little bit better, which is, you know, Hey, <laughs> like imagine you're a Goliath. It's like, all right, tonight we're playing the, uh, who are we playing? Oh, we're playing the, uh, playing the Red Wings. So uh, I don't know why I gave Goliath the accent. Just go with it. Um, yeah. yeah, let's, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, no sec, uh, we're playing the wings tonight. So, uh, let's win this one for nosy. Okay. One, two, three, go. Yeah. Like, it, it just, yeah. I imagine that would be a kind of funny thing. Just like before you step out there, like, remember guys, we're not playing for us tonight. We're playing for wild bill, right? Like that is, I'd like that idea. That's a very, that's a very fun idea, but yes, I, I'm the, the long and short answer. Yes, I buy, I totally buy into New York seeing this as an opportunity to uh, obviously examine what their skill set is without Tavares. I mean, they were going to have to do that anyway, but when you have a determined and proven and winning coach to uh, give you the tools to be able to appropriately assess what you have at your disposal and then just kind of move some pieces around and now look where they are, right? Like, so, you know, freaking Toronto is... You know they're 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 they are tied in points with Toronto right now, so they've got I'm sure a couple more meetings to 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 have fun with that narrative. Um, I would 
Oh yeah, yeah. They're coming to they're coming to New York twice. Yeah. Uh, I think the first game is late. I th- I want to say February twenty eighth, but I know for a fact because okay, that's going to be at the Barclay Center. I know for a fact that April first, which is one of the last games of the season, the the Toronto Maple Leafs are coming to Nassau Coliseum, and that is going to be a gong show. I yeah. Think. Yeah, I would uh, I would actually prefer to watch that on a Canadian channel uh, for that game. So I'm sure sure someone on the internet will be generous enough to offer that. But yes, yes, I I totally think that there's. I mean, we'd be dumb not to think about that. But what's weird is I feel like some people could maybe just brush it off as like, yeah, yeah, they're just pissed at him. It's like, no, no, this is like, like let's say they go, let's say they're a they could make it to the second round, right? Like, let's just be, like, conservative. Or let's say they they make it all the way to a conference final or, heck, even a, a, cup, a cup final appearance. Um, that would probably give them so much more validation and, um, and character morale boost knowing that they can get there, you know, which isn't to say that they couldn't maybe get, like, again, we're talking, it's not like Trotz and Tavares were there this, at the same time. Tavares left just as Trotz was coming in. So we will forever be at the mercy of the fates about wondering what this season would have looked like if Trotz and Tavares were working together. And, and, and you know, are they in the same position? Are they, are they at now? Lower? Higher? We don't know. Yeah. But given where we're at right now, based on the information we have, absolutely. Tavares not being there mm-hmm. probably sent a message out. It's like, okay, so this guy that was often heralded as the friggin' pariah – Right, he's not here anymore. So, what do we want to do about that? What do you guys feel? And it seems the reaction is, we give zero f's. <laughs> we, yeah. we will go on. We will fight them on the beaches, yeah. in the sea, yeah. in the air. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I mean, like one thing I was thinking too is that, in some ways, it's almost a perfect storm confluence of different things happening because obviously you have the. Um, you know the, the the kind of narrative that I had said before the the motivation factor. You have f- huge fan favorite Matt Martin returning to the Islanders, and you know didn't really ha- didn't really seem to be from what I understand didn't really seem to very, be very happy with the way that he. I don't want to say that he was treated because that almost makes it sound like like personal yeah. stuff, but you know just the role he was given on Toronto, etc. He didn't seem to be very happy there as a player and you know whatever you know whatever you want to say about Matt Martin the New York fan base absolutely loves him and to have him back you know they brought him back and they put him with Kazikas and uh Clutterbuck which was their their big time energy line in the past and again like I'm not saying oh well that's that's the reason you know but I think I think that could be part of it because it gets the fans interested excited and, you know, when the fans are into the game, like that's, you know, that's helpful for the team. That's, you know, teams typically play in an environment where the fans are into it. I mean, there's kind of like an energy factor. Yeah, it's weird. Um, <laughs> so weird. When I you know. Is that weird? Wow. I yeah. never thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, but, yeah. no, but the other thing, too, is that in order in order for this to happen, I think the Islanders as a team had to buy in. To, they had to buy what Barry Trotz was selling, and it seems like they have wholeheartedly committed to it. And I wonder if the, if that would have happened had he not won a Stanley Cup the previous year. You know, because for a long time he was considered he's a really good coach. 
he's really good in the regular season, can't win the big game. Just like just like uh, Ovechkin, just like Backstrom, and he did. And you know, he proved that he can do it. He proved that he is, you know, a a, a very very good NHL coach. And I wonder if that had something to do with it. That now the team is going to buy into what he's putting in place more readily than in the past. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, 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 n- n- you know, n- I mean, they're professional athletes. They're not going to be like, Oh yeah, screw you. We're not going to do what you want. Right. But I think in, in terms of wholeheartedly committing. Um, yeah. So regardless, it's going to be interesting to see. We still have, we still have a ways to go in the season. Um, I'm surprised. Like we say, we're about ha- I'm surprised we didn't have some sort of bold prediction. We're like, Hey, do you think with the season we're going to be talking about the <laughs> Islanders being in the first place? So in the first place <laughs> in the Metro. So uh, uh, again, we're, I'm yeah. of, of the, all the ways to start our, our <laughs> midlife crisis episode. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, so that's what's going on right now. Uh, we're going to get to some more current NHL events. But before we do, we are going to jump to our interview with the Russian Five author Keith Gave. We we did the interview before we recorded this, you know, the rest of the podcast. So we can wholeheartedly say that it, it is a fantastic interview. Um Keith is an amazing storyteller. Uh, I kind of feel like if uh, you know if, if time commitments weren't a thing and and you know we could have we could have talked to him for two hours and and not been bored at all. You know his his uh, his stories are interesting. The way he tells them is really interesting. So uh, you got a treat ahead of you. And then after the interview, uh, Jay and I will have some more stuff for you. So enjoy. Like talking about how good the interview was. Our guest today is Keith Gave, the author of the book The Russian Five. He's had an incredible life and career, spending six years in the U.S. Army as a Russian linguist working for the NSA. He worked for 15 years for the Detroit Free Press, covering the Red Wings. In addition to writing the book The Russian Five, he was also a writer and producer on the documentary film version of the story. Uh, Keith, thank you so much for taking some time out of your weekend to talk to us today. It's my pleasure, guys. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you. Awesome. Us too. Yeah. Um, all right. So my first question is: uh, I read the book. Um, I'm a I'm an English teacher in high school, and so I have a habit of starting really? a book and then getting interrupted by I have to read a book for school. And so I read the first half of it. I don't know months ago, and I loved it. But then I got distracted. I had to read a book for school, and then so the last couple of days I went through and finished it. Um, so for me, even with so many interesting stories, the one detail that like seems to me like a selling point in trying to get others to to read the book is the fact that in addition to writing the story, you know, you also appear as part of it. Uh, so for our listeners who haven't read the story yet, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the part that you played uh, in the defection of Sergei Fedorov and Vladimir Konstantinov? Yeah, that's a good question. That's what everybody likes to talk about for sure. You know, uh, uh, people people ask me why I wrote the book. You know, I, I was a career newsman and uh, enjoyed uh, the daily thrill of chasing deadlines, chasing or chasing news and on deadline. Always have the knife turning in your stomach. Uh, writing uh, uh, for uh, covering a, a major professional sports team for a major metropolitan newspaper, a daily newspaper morning newspaper like the free press and then in dallas when i went to the morning news uh is um a kind of a thrill ride unto itself just trying to meet unreasonable deadlines trying to get your game story in the paper i i loved all that i'd never had uh a, a really strong desire like a lot of people who write do to have my name on a bookshelf someday hmm. i wrote this book as i tell people because nobody else could write it uh nobody else could write it because 
I knew the story better than everybody else because I was part of it. And uh, how that all began, uh, you know, I, I, you, you mentioned my background in, um, in, in the military and in, in, uh, military intelligence with the NSA. As a Russian linguist, my big assignment was uh, working uh, three years in West Berlin in a building that looked like something out of a James Bond movie with all sorts of antennas and, <laughs> uh, you know, satellite dishes and so on. And, you know, it was, just, it was a state-of-the-art spy station in the middle 70s. And, uh, you know, we, my job was basically to keep track of the bad guys on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm. I did that for six years. I got out. Uh, you know, I thought I wanted to teach teach Russian maybe because that's what my degree wound up being in. And I uh, uh, I quickly learned that I wasn't going to get jo- get a job teaching Russian because uh, there Americans don't study other languages. They certainly don't study Russian because it's hard. And uh, and and the and the few jobs that that exist go to Russians who emigrate to this country, right? So I looked for something else to do. I wound up in the newspaper business, hoping to use my language doing that someday. And uh, roundabout uh, way, I, I, I started out in the Lansing State Journal, went to the AP Chicago, uh, the Associated Press, and then uh, came home to the Detroit uh, Free Press in the summer of 1984. And uh, I, I began really as uh, as doing some freelance work and there was a pretty exciting uh summer of 84 do you guys uh, any are you old enough to remember what was going on then well i mean i think yeah. ghostbusters came out right so that's <laughs> that was pretty much the yeah <laughs> yeah that was pretty exciting that was pretty good yeah, uh, yeah. The, the tigers were winning uh, the world series right they started the year 35 and 5 right. went, went on to win the world series and uh I, I i helped the free press cover a world championship team they hired me i spent a year on the city desk and then in 1985 uh i I saw on the bulletin board, this is pre-internet, there were two um, uh, two jobs posted on our bulletin board at the Free Press, and one of them was for the NBA job covering the Pistons, the other was for the uh, NHL job covering the Red Wings, and I kind of threw my name in a hat with, I'm sure, hundreds of other people, and uh, the sports editor hired me to cover the Detroit Red Wings starting in 1985. They were a pretty bad team then, as you recall, <laughs> that year, my first year covering the Red Wings, uh, 1985-86, they finished 21st in a 21-team league with 40 points, the worst <laughs> team in the history of the franchise. That was my baptism under fire. Uh, they won 17, lost 57, and tied six. And, uh, you know, they were getting – the Illich, Mike, Mike and Marion Illich bought the team in 1982. The first draft was in 1983. Real good draft when they built uh, – they drafted Steve Eisenman, of course, and – you know, Bob Probert, Joe Koster, Peter Klima, they kind of got a pretty good nucleus for a team that would do, do okay in the late 90s but never could get over the hump. So by 1989, uh, Jimmy D was getting, the, the, the general manager, Jim Devolano, was getting nervous about his job and decided he needed an influx of talent in the worst way or the best way to build, keep building around Steve Eisenman. So he decided to go, you know, behind the Iron Curtain and start mm-hmm. drafting you know, Soviet uh, hockey players, um, especially from the uh, Soviet Red Army Club, which had all the best players at the time. So they made history in the summer of 1989, and they used their fourth-round pick to take Sergei Fedorov, mm-hmm. and the highest ever, uh, Soviet-born player had ever been drafted to that point. And then they took a flyer and a guy named Vladimir Konstantinov in the 11th round, I think 221st overall. I'm, I'm not sure about that. but and So they got two guys, right? And... Um, uh, all of a sudden, out of the blue, I got a call. It was, this was in uh, late July, about a month after the draft, from Jim Lights, who was then 
the executive vice president of the Detroit Red Wings and the son-in-law of Mike and Mary Neelish. He was he, he was married to Denise at the time. He invited me to lunch out of the blue. Now, I'm not the only time. I got a telephone call from Jim Lights was when he wanted to bitch me out about something, something <laughs> I had written in the free press. This thing, this, and that happened, it was a fairly common occurrence, actually. But uh, uh, he, it was all, you know, uh, friendly and nice and upbeat. Hey, uh, you wonder if you want to have lunch with me. I got one, I want to run something by you. And so I met him for lunch a day or two later at the Elwood Cafe on Woodward Avenue, right across the street from the Fox theater that the family had just got done renovating. And, uh, uh, he said, okay, now I, 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 you feel free to stop me at any point here, but I'm wondering if you might be able to help us out and right away. My antenna goes up. I'm not, I'm not in the business of helping out the team that I cover. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that, that's, uh, that's bad form and unethical. But he said, we, as you know, we drafted these two Russian guys. I said, yeah, Jim, I was there. I, uh, at the Montreal forum, I wrote all about it for the free press. He said, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, we we're really in a hurry to get these guys out. We we we, we want to help them defect or you know whatever we need to do to get them out. Yeah, but the, we need to make first contact. We we need to at least let them know that they've been drafted by us. We want them to come over here as quickly as possible. We'll help them in any way possible. And we need somebody to make the first contact. And we're wondering if you could do that for us. And uh, I, I I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you you know. You're, you're a newsman, you're, 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 you know our team, you know the league, you know the game, uh, you have access because you have an NHL media pass. We found out that the Soviet national team is having a, uh, a, their training camp in Finland, and there are some games that are going to be playing in Helsinki, and we thought maybe you could go to one of those games and, uh, you know, as a reporter and uh, you know, interview these guys. You, you use the word interview in air quotes, right? Yeah. When while you're interviewing, you could pass along the message uh, to each of them that we want to help them, you know, defect and come over here. And and I, I almost started laughing. I didn't laugh, but I just I put my hands in kind of a timeout signal, and I said, "Wait a minute, Jim." Uh, I said, "There's there's no way I can do this. I work for the Free Press. They found out I did something like that for you. I, I you know, I could lose my job, and I like my job. I got a good, nice career going here, and you know, as a sports writer and." Uh, uh, I don't want to jeopardize that. He said, oh, okay, enough said. I understand that. You know, I, I figured, you know, that's that's what you'd say. He said, but I also want, you know, we're willing to pay you a lot of money. And uh, and I, I started shaking my head. And I, he never got to the the exact figure that he was willing to pay me to do this <laughs> favor for them. But he but he mentioned the term six figures. And I know where that starts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> it, it, you know, for a, a guy on a meager sports writer salary in 1989, that was life-changing money. Hmm. And I said, Jim, there's no way I can do this. I'm sorry. As much as I'd like to, I can't do it. And he said, I, I, no problem. I, I thought I'd give it a shot. And so I went home, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all this and wondering, you know, if there's a way to do it. And I, I, I'd written, I'd read enough, uh, you know, spy novels or, and uh, nonfiction books by, Reporters who'd gone over there for the New York Times, the AP, the Washington Post had, had their two, two, three-year assignments, and uh, how they found themselves in the middle, wittingly or unwittingly, you know, passing messages back and forth from the KGB and the CIA and <laughs> and uh, other intelligence operatives and so on. I'm thinking about all this, and essentially, I said, "Well, what, you know, what, why not me? Why can't I do that?" Uh, and I called lights back. You know, and I said, Jim, there might be a way we can do this. And he said, how's that? 
And I said, I'm not going to take a dime of your money. I don't want any money at all. I'll pay my own expenses over there. I'll go over there. I'll do my best to pass along the messages. And uh, on one condition, he said, what's that? And I said, when these guys come over here, I want to be your first phone call. When Sergey Federal comes over here, um, when you get them, I want to know it first. I want the news first for my readers of the Detroit Free Press. I want to interview them first. I want first dibs on all things Russian with all these guys. You know, um, well, I said both these guys. I didn't know that they were going to draft Slava Kosov the next year, and I didn't know that they were going to wind up trading, you know, for uh, Slava Kosov and the Negro Liriano. But, but anyways, yeah, you know, I said I, I, I just want the news first for, for my readers. He said, done, deal. And I, and I said, okay. And, uh, you know, about uh, a week or so later, I was on my way to Helsinki, Finland, to pass along a message that was uh, – it still feels like like something out of a, a Mission Impossible, uh, uh, you know, movie or show. Okay. Uh, just, to, you know, getting getting there, getting access, and actually passing along your messages to those, those guys and so on. So I was in the middle of this from the beginning. I knew more about it. I, I just knew more – I knew the story best. I was the, I was the right guy to tell it. Long answer to uh, – uh, a short, good question about you know how and why I, I I wrote this book. No, that's fine. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's um, I, I I've I'm about halfway through the book right now, Keith, and and it's really weird to I'm I'm trying to remember the last time that I've been reading stories because like for the most part, like I know what's going to happen, right? It's a story that like mm-hmm. I've read about you. You're you know, like being on the edge of it and just seeing just as a fan how this is developed but like and just first of all just kudos to you for making it all feel like i've never read it before <laughs> so so that was so, so that was really cool um the one thing that was is kind of the biggest bombshell for me and and i don't know if this was the same for everybody else and maybe this was common knowledge to everybody but like just i guess reading it in the way that you told it um i was I'm, I'm again. I'm, the reason why I'm struggling to say it now is because I, my mind still reels at the possibility of what universe we would be living in if this actually happened. But um, I guess I wanted to get a, a, a little bit of clarification because I don't remember exactly what happened. But the wings had a chance to also get Bure. Huh. And yeah, and how about I, that? How I, about I, I was, I, I like, I'm sitting. I'm, I go up north, uh, up to um, to Mackinac City every every year and uh for a week in june and um i had i hadn't i was i usually try and get like a couple of books to get up there but like this year i just i didn't have time to to stop at a store before i could uh i could head up there and uh on the way mm-hmm. up i actually took a little detour up to petoskey and this neat little bookshop and right up front you're like mm-hmm. on, on like the feature list i think you had recently done a speaking tour up there or, right. uh, or something, but uh, uh, the Russia Five book is right there, and I was like, "Bingo, there it is!" And I'm sitting, uh, I'm yeah. sitting on the beach, and I'm reading the Bure stuff, and I'm just, I'm, I'm like, I had, I almost had to put it down. I was like, "You cannot be serious." So <laughs> just, just for those who may not have gotten about that, so like, what, what was the circumstance that they yeah. could have, and then, and then, and then, what kind of stopped them? Because from what I understand, yeah. from what I remember, it was a little, a little like. Looking back on it, they totally could have had him, but there was just like a really weird breakdown of how the rules. Yeah, were, uh, and, and, and the rules were interpreted uh, incorrectly when the wings wanted to take him. Uh, and you know, here's the here's the the uh, the, the story about that. You got to remember this, guys, too. Hmm. Um, the, the 1980 draft was historic in many many ways for the for the uh, uh, Red Wings. In the third round, they got Nick Lidstrom. Third round, Nick Lidstrom. 
Wow. Uh, and, and then the fourth round, they took uh, Sergey Fedorov, back-to-back Hall of Famers. Three, with picks three, the third-round pick and the fourth-round pick, you get two Hall of Famers. Not a bad draft. In the fir- first round, they took Mike Sillinger, who played more than 1,000 games in the NHL, had a real nice career. Second round, they took Bob Bookner, a defenseman who played nearly 1,000 games, also had a very nice NHL career, now coaching the uh, Florida Panthers. Those are the first four guys. Uh, you know, anybody, anybody would be thrilled with that. Fifth round comes along. Right? Or, yeah, fifth round comes along. And uh, the two guys you gotta, that, that really deserve most of the credit for this are the uh, assistant general manager, Neil Smith, at the time, and um, uh, the uh, uh, European scout, Christopher Rockstrom, uh, who actually was the, gets, gets, should get credit for finding and, and kind of hiding away uh, mm-hmm. uh, Nick Lidstrom a little bit. But uh, so, you know, they get to the fifth round, and they're thinking, you know, they want Pavel Bore, Pavel Bore. And uh, they, they weren't sure, because of the rules at the time, in his age at the time, I don't think he was a standard 18-year-old. I think he might have been 19, uh, but he had to he had to have played so many games of international hockey, whether it's junior or world championships or whatever. Uh, and forgive me for not knowing this precisely, uh, but it was an ambiguous rule. And and the the uh, NHL president at the time, named uh, act, uh, acting interim, maybe he was a president for a short time, Gil Stein, actually. Uh, made made a ruling. Uh, it basically said the, to the Wings, "No, he's not eligible. He hasn't played enough international hockey." And the Wings were a little bit frustrated because you got Rock, Chris Rockstrom, the scout, is saying, "I am sure that this guy is eligible. I am positive. I know the games. I have it in my, in, you know, in my documents." And the Wings said, "Well." You know, if there if there's some doubt, they wound up taking another guy. I don't even know who they took. A guy played two or three games in the NHL, maybe, uh, and uh, and 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 they get so frustrated. And, and uh, Neil Smith and Chris Rocks were throwing such a fit. They said, "Okay, we'll take him in the sixth round. We'll take him in the sixth round, and uh, we'll just take it and sort out the details later." And they, they're, they're getting close to their pick. Get close to their pick, and about two or three picks right before Detroit. Vancouver took Pavel Bore, mm-hmm. and that's how he wound up out there. <laughs> but the wings, a couple of the wings, uh, you know, the scout in in the assistant GM at the time were, you know, screaming bloody Murray, mm-hmm. uh, bloody bloody murder <laughs> about drafting about drafting Pavel Bore in the fifth round. There, imagine Hall of Famers with picks three, four, and five in a draft. Can you imagine <laughs> Sergey Fedorov and Pavel Bore uh, oh, together on this team on the I, line? I, I, I mean, couldn't stop God. imagining it after I read that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's Keith, I, again, I had to put the book down because uh, as I'd like to think I have a pretty active imagination, and with that information <laughs> – my, like I felt like I was going to have a stroke because I was like, "Oh my God, you cannot <laughs> yeah. be serious!" And yeah. and reading you know, about every every, every, yeah. every team has it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it's just again, like I said, like maybe people knew about the, the way that the story had had unfolded, and like maybe this isn't like the biggest bombshell, but just for me to hear it in in that thing of like, okay, so they had to pass on him. And then, in tr- like again, like you said, with it's like the last ten minutes of a Mission Impossible movie, the clock's <laughs> ticking. You're getting so close, yeah. And then, and then Vancouver just like you, we're talking a massive like timeline. <laughs> like there, that's where the timeline split. Because if they don't pick, we're like maybe we're having this conversation and we're talking about the wings. You know, again, I, I, 
there's so many what ifs, and I know it's really hard to like try and like nail down like if there's anything concrete that we could come out of. Yes, the Red Wings now have, you know, Pavel Bure and and Sergei Fedorov and Nicholas Lidstrom all on and, the same team in their prime. Exactly, yeah, yeah. all in their prime. Not just yeah, not, not just hey, this was a you know like a mid '90s 2002 shadow of like oh just a bunch of guys on a bunch of one year deals. No, these were guys breaking into the in the league. Right. Oh, just, right. Just massive. Right. Imagine that nucleus for the next ten years, twelve oh. years. Mm. Oh. Well, you know, illicit guys, I don't want to get, veer too far off the subject here, but yeah, every sure. team has you know, has a draft horror story every year, and the Wings have a yeah. couple of them. In 1991, uh, they had the third overall pick, and uh, you got uh, assistant general manager at the time, Nick Polano, really, really, really wanted this one guy. And Jim Devolano says, nope, nope, I'm not. I'm taking the kid. I'm taking the Canadian kid. I'm taking the Canadian kid. I don't want any more. Uh, you know, problems with those Europeans, uh, they, they're driving me crazy. And so the Wings, with their third overall pick, took Keith Primo, and two picks later, Pittsburgh took Yarmer Yager. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, 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 guy, yeah. the guy that Nick Polano was uh, was screaming for them to take. Can you yeah. imagine, again, Yarmer Yager on a line next to uh, yeah. uh, Sergey Federov. And, I mean, yeah, th- that's tied into another team's kind of draft horror story because the Islanders had the sixth pick and they ended up taking Scott Sissons, I think it was. And right. if you remember the last game of the season, uh, the way the standings worked, the Islanders would have had the fifth pick. Um, and I think they ended up That's winning right. a game. Yeah, I think it was yeah. Uh, Uwe Krupp scored. Uh, I think it was him to. Uh, oh, that's a good memory. I don't remember that. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's to move them into the sixth pick instead of the fifth, and and so I mean, imagine. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not saying it wouldn't have been great to have Yager, but I mean, you know, Keith Primo had a pretty good career for the Red Wings compared to. Uh, I don't well, even know if Scott Sissons played the up, NHL. You want to be traded for for uh, for, for uh, Brandon Shanahan? Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, so I wanted to ask you something because, like I said, I I uh, you know I read the first half of the book a while ago, and I I read the re- the rest of the book uh, recently, and so I wanted to ask you a question about um, kind of not just about the story, but also kind of being part of the story in a different way because you were a journalist covering you know the Red Wings, etc. So you know near the end of the book. Uh, you have the section about the the limo crash with Fatisov, Konstantinov, and uh, is it Mu, wait Munat? Mu, sorry, Munatsakanov. Munatsakanov. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I wrote yeah. it out phonetically, so uh, but I, I don't think I ever tried to say it before. Um, so, like I said, I mean, obviously, like in the in the book, I mean, I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna exaggerate. I was sitting at my desk after school yesterday because I want to make sure I could finish it up before we talk to you and. I wasn't tearing up. I was literally crying at my desk at some of the parts, partially because of sadness, but then partially because of joy, uh, like the story with Konstantinov sitting in the locker room and surprising them. Um, but I, I wanted to, because I mean, I think you did a beautiful job of covering what happened in the book, but I just wanted to ask you, like, as a journalist, and especially, you know, you you were close to these guys, you know, with especially Konstantinov having, you know, been the first pl- person to make contact with him, like you talked about before. So what was it like as a journalist covering that story? Well, I'll be perfectly honest. Um, I, I had a really hard time with it. Hmm. I, I had a really hard time with it. Um, it was, it was, I, I, it's almost like, I was in shock, uh, and I didn't do a very good job. Thank goodness we had two young reporters uh, uh, who were 
working, really working the beat at the time. I was right. Do I had a, a columnist role by that time? I wrote more opinion stuff and analysis than I did having to really chase uh, chase the news. And and uh, Jason Lockenfora was our main beat guy, and uh, working with him was Helene uh, St. James, who's uh, still working at the Free Press. Yeah. Uh, uh, covering covering the wings, but uh, you know they did a pretty good job covering that. I honestly had a, uh, I felt like I went in the tunnel for a little while. Um, I'll, I'll I'll be honest, I I adored uh, Vladimir Konstantinov. I loved that guy, and if you you know I I, I like to if I in my heart of hearts you know what I know to be true is this that this book um, is uh, I sometimes reads more reads more like a love letter to. Uh, Vladimir Konstantinov. In some ways, that's what it was. I mean, yeah. as a as a person, as a and I've seen I've seen him just as a guy, uh, as a, a husband, as a father, as a teammate, as a friend. Uh, I don't care what role. I'm sure as a son and a brother and, and so on. Uh, he's one of the finest men I've ever met, ever, ever, ever. And um, you know, I, I was grateful to to get to know him on several different levels uh in the really what turned out to be a short time that we that we had him around uh as a player um you know it, I, you teared up uh, it, it, people have, uh, many people have acknowledged uh to me that they teared up when they read that chapter and i gotta mm-hmm. tell you i teared, teared up several times yeah. uh writing the darn thing i had to stop at some point and you know and, and pick it up again it's still hard it's still mm-hmm. hard Every time I see him now, I see him, you know, I saw him at uh, the premiere of the uh, the Russian Five uh, documentary film at, at the, uh, the Fillmore Theater in Detroit. And, uh, you know, I saw him and he, his eyes light up. Hey, Keith, you know, and, uh, you know, puts his hand out, gives me a, you know, a big, strong handshake, the same strength uh, uh, of handshake that he gave me the, on June 7th, 1997, when he won the Stanley Cup. It's the first guy I bumped into when I went in the dressing room. And, uh you know, uh, you know, put his arm around me and gave me a big hug, you know, well, there in, in, in his wheelchair. And, uh, you know, Vladdy still remembers me, and it makes me feel really, really good. Uh, and he remembers everything from or a lot of things, I think, from that era. Uh, he just can't remember five minutes ago. His brain was so jumbled that he's lost his short-term memory. Um, but I, I'll tell you this, you know, in, from my time in the service, uh, when I was in the Army, uh, I, I, I learned to judge men by who I'd want in a foxhole with me when the bullets are flying. And uh, you could take a hockey stick and troll it around and let it fall, and wherever it fell on the floor of the Red Wings dressing room at the time would point to a guy that you wouldn't mind having next to you when the, when, when, when the, when the guns were blazing. Uh, it, it was full of really good, fine people and, and great players, and that's why they won the Stanley Cup in 1997 and 1998. But I'll tell you this. If you put a gun to my head and make me pick one guy, I'm taking number 16. Hmm. And I'll tell you this, too. If you put a gun to anybody else's head in that dressing room at the time, they're going to pick number 16, too. Period. Yeah. He's that kind of – he's just the kind of guy you want next to you uh, when, uh, when when the stuff goes down. Hmm. Great. Just a, just a wonderful, wonderful human being. Absolutely. Um, and. And I, 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 I can only, I just can, can, can only imagine the, the what ifs. Uh, uh, if he, if the, the limo accident hadn't happened, he was able to have a full career. He'd be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. They probably win two or three more Stanley Cups. Imagine him and Yuri Fisher as defense partners for about five years down the stretch. Man. You know, they lost Yuri Fisher to a heart problem too. Yeah. Um, 
here's the other thing: if they if they if if Constantino doesn't get hurt like that, they don't they don't have to a couple of years later trying to fill that gaping hole on defense. They don't have to give up two first round draft picks and and uh, and, and a, a couple of players to get Chris Chelios out of Chicago. Now that was a good trade, but imagine you know not having to give up two first round picks and having those players that you could get as part of the nucleus that you're building, you know, for the future. You know, they gave up a lot uh, to, to fill the hole left by Vladimir Konstantinov. You know, the what-ifs are infinite, but uh, uh, it's just it's just really, really sad, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad we still all get to have the image of uh, him getting rolled out in the ice in Washington. And Wasn't that something? Yeah. Wasn't that something? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, just just absolutely. I mean, I, I I thought yeah. the year before was was pretty. I got tears. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I got I got tears in my eyes sitting in the, in the Joe Louis Arena press box when Steve Eisman turned and he pointed to Slava uh, uh, Tisov and said, "Here, yeah. I want you to take it." And Slava, you know, Slava right away grabs Igor Yanov, and you got the two Russians, one on one end of the cup, one on the other. The two old Russians yeah. skate. Yeah. The, you know, they're the first guy after the captain to skate the yeah. cup around the ice. Two members of the former Soviet Red Army team. Former. They are now Detroit Red Wings. All the way, baby. Sergei Fedorov said it best. It means everything. I mean, that was a tip of the cap to hmm. the Russian Five. And those two guys, that the one in particular, Fetisov, who hmm. you know was thought he was going to retire. And it wound up that he, he, he played one more season. Uh, because of the because of the limo accident, he said, "I thought I'd play one more and try and play for him a little bit too." Uh, but that was a great mm-hmm. moment. And then the mm-hmm. the next year uh, in uh, Washington kind of blew that one away when they wheeled Laddie out. Eisman, mm-hmm. uh, he, if you notice, Eisman didn't even uh, skate around the ice at the MCI Center. There, he <laughs> yeah. just did a a three sixty with a cup over his head. <laughs> so everybody could get the picture. He took about two strides and put it in Laddie's lap. Stryker said today, we can't wait to hand the cup to Vladimir Konstantinov in the wheelchair. That will make everything we've worked for worthwhile. And suddenly there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And <laughs> yeah. they skated around. It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, I thought it was really great last year. We had kind of a almost like an echo of that with uh, you know two other Absolutely. Europeans that had been called you know to you know not not tough enough in the playoffs to win. We have uh, you know Ovechkin and Backstrom doing their yep. victory lap with the cup together. So that was that was kind of a neat, like I said, a little, like a little echo of that. Um, it reminded it sure me of was. that when I was reading it. Yeah, it sure was. And what did everybody talk about? Every you know, I mean, I heard. Uh... Uh, all kinds of comparison, including as it was happening by, I think, uh, uh, Doc Emmerich maybe, but, you know, among others, but they were talking about how this was remindful of Steve Eisenman. You know, after 13 or 14 years, he finally gets to raise a couple of his head. And, you know, Vetchkin, a captain who, you know, underwent similar kinds of criticism and so on, finally, finally gets his chance to raise the cup too. I thought it was a great moment for, for him and for hockey. It still sticks in my head, him swimming in that fountain 
It's it's just one of the greatest things. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, Keith, we had a, a couple more questions for you, and then we were gonna uh, wrap this up because I'm sure you're you're you've got many other fun things to do on on a fun Saturday here. But uh, so recently, Pete and I had kind of gone down a YouTube uh, rabbit hole to watch some some highlights of these guys playing, and uh, mm-hmm. it uh, again just some of these breathtaking just. Again, if you take away the goals, I think the passing alone is is could like warrant these guys just like a special place in in uh, in Toronto. But um, it, it got me thinking. So we have all these moments now. Was there and like we get, we have the ability to just pull them up at will and just watch these these moments happen again. But we wouldn't have those moments per se if if we didn't have your. Um, you know, at the time undercover, but now you know mostly lauded efforts to get them out there. So was there, was there any moment, uh, or maybe is there were a couple moments where you thought to yourself like, okay, this is not going to work, <laughs> but then it actually did, or was like, what is there like a anything surprising like along the way of of helping these guys get out of there where you were like, you know, I have to be honest, I thought the whole thing was was done when this happened, but because it went the other way, we get to talk about five of the you know most talented players at the time completely changing the face of not just the team that they are now playing on which happens to thankfully wear a winged wheel but also what they did to hockey as a whole yeah uh, you know that's a good question i don't know that i ever thought it it, it wouldn't work um it, i i didn't buy into um a lot of what we were hearing at the time mostly from canadian guys i gotta tell you the canadians uh they they uh, they think a lot of their 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 NHL. They were proprietary. Uh, it was their league. Canadians played the game. Canadians made up the league. They were about eighty percent of the league at the time. They did not like Europeans coming over and taking their jobs. They didn't like Americans coming over and taking their jobs. I heard a lot of grumbling from a lot of really great Canadian guys who I respected. You know, talking about how you know too many Europeans on your team are gonna you know they're gonna ruin the team, ruin the league, blah blah blah. Well. Did just quite the opposite, didn't it? Now, now there are, you know, fewer than fifty percent of the players are uh, are Canadian, about forty nine percent, I think, uh, and a lot more Canadians and a heck of a lot more Europeans. And what do we got? A much better NHL. And it started, really started, with uh, with with the Russians and uh, you know Detroit taking a big chance and putting five of them together. And uh, I, I got to tell you, uh, right from the get go, right from the start, when they got these five guys together, two days after. I think they traded for Igor Orianov on October 25th. October 27th, Scotty throws them all over the boards together uh, in Calgary. Remember that game, October 27th, yeah. 1995? Oh, yeah. yeah, I watched uh, that, you too. Know, yeah. it, it, you know, here's the thing about that. They, that was a pretty good Calgary team, guys. Pretty good team. Uh, Detroit outshot Calgary 25-8. to eight. Calgary had eight shots the entire night. The Wings win the game 3 to nothing. The Russians had... Two of the three goals and 15 of Detroit's 25 shots. <laughs> you knew right away that it was going to work. And and I'll tell you what, go back and look at the at, at the YouTube of, of the uh, video of that game, the very first game that the the Russian five scored together when they're on the ice. The the, the Calgary, Calgary Flames were attacking. They they just crossed their blue line. They're in. There was a turnover. Vladdy gets the puck, backhands it uh, to to. Um, uh, Sergei Fedorov at center ice. Fedorov, without even looking, uh, gives a little deft little backhand pass of his own, 
Slava Kozlov had already turned. He was going 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 uh, back to back kick. He'd already turned in the neutral zone and was headed back the other way toward the Calgary goal. Uh, Fedorov's backhand pass put was right on the tape of Kozlov's stick. He went in alone on the goaltender, uh, Trevor Trevor uh, Trevor Kid maybe, and um, mm-hmm. uh, you know basically and knocked his own rebound into an empty net. But it was a brilliant, beautiful goal, and that that was the beginning of the. Uh, the the seed change that we saw in the NHL, the Red Wings uh, started to play uh, what uh, has been described since ad nauseum possession hockey teams started to hate to play against Detroit Red Wings because they had to puck all the time. They <laughs> wouldn't share the puck. That was the complaint. And, uh, you know, the result was two Stanley Cups, um, in, you know, back-to-back, three in uh, what, five, three in six years, um, and uh, a much different, better game in my view. Yeah, after uh, when I got to that part of the book where you described it, I actually stopped. I put the book down and I went to YouTube to find it. And uh, so, for for listeners, if you go to my if you go to my Twitter account, I I took that YouTube and I, I made a, a gif of the uh, the replay of it where you can see just like Keith just described it. Because uh, it's hard to see in the initial shot, but the replay shows it really really clearly. Right. Just just how incredible both of those passes are. And then you know, not even just that, but like like Kozlov's you know composure after the first shot is saved to just tuck the rebound in that was yep. pretty amazing to see so um we have uh, so so we're gonna let you go in a second i have one more question uh because actually i know um I, both jay and i listened to your interview with craig Custance because we wanted to mm-hmm. see the things you talked about um and actually a listener had the same question uh yeah because i reached out to craig and asked hey you know you did an awesome interview was there anything you didn't get to ask that you wanted to and this is what he asked, and then we had a listener ask the same thing. So, with the the Russian Five documentary, you know, I know it's it, it was at a film festival. Are people currently able to see it? If so, how? And if not, do you know when people will be able to watch it? Because I know a lot of people are really interested in seeing it. Great question, and I was going to sneak that in uh, myself. <laughs> I wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to let you go without talking about that. Um, <laughs> there you go. The, yeah, <laughs> the, the the festival has has completed it, the uh, movie has completed its festival circuit. Uh, it played in uh, it, we uh, premiered it in Detroit, and then it went to the Seattle International Film Festival. It came home back uh, to Traverse City, the Michael Moore Film Festival up there uh, in, in Traverse City. Uh, it went to Montreal, played in a you know at a, at a film uh, event up there. Uh, at those four places, and I think in in Windsor too. At all those places, it won the Audience Choice Award uh, at the festival. It's been very very well received. Uh, and, and ever since uh, in the last couple of months, the, the uh, uh, they've been busy uh, trying to you know find a home for this thing. Where are we going to do it? And uh, I could give you some detail. I can't give you. I can't be precise, but I can tell you this. Okay. What I know is that um, sometime in late by by late March, by middle to late March, it should be available to view in uh, in theaters around Michigan. They're, awesome. they're, okay. they're, they're, they're putting together a theatrical release around Michigan. And uh, uh, so, you know, we should be able to see it at least around Michigan. I, 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 I think they're negotiation, negotiating with Canada, too, because to, I'm sure it will be of great interest all around Canada uh, because yeah. of interest in hockey and the, and the Russians. Uh, and then um, will it be available on DVD uh, for download someplace? Uh, probably, uh, very, very likely. 
Uh, will it be available on any of the big, uh, uh, you know, networks and TV like like uh, Netflix, Hulu, uh, ESPN Thirty for Thirty? I'm I'm thinking yes. I just can't tell you what yet. But within a few months after the theatrical release in Michigan, uh, people should mm-hmm. be able to find it on uh, on uh, some of the uh, movie channels. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that's that's. That's ambiguous, but it's the best I can be. Uh, I can get you right now, and I just learned that this is this is really new. I just uh, uh, from the executive producer of the movie Dan Milstein, who put up the uh, uh, the money to make the film, and also owns the publishing house that uh, uh, that that published my book. Um, he that's this is what he told me. Um, I, I just can't be precise about the date yet because it's not been set. But I think by the end of March, it's going to be in theaters in Michigan finally. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Because, like I said, I know a lot of people have been asking, uh, you know, because it, it, they they're curious, uh, either having read the book or just just being interested in the story. So, um, so Keith, thank you so much again for uh, for stopping by. For for our listeners, you can find his book. Uh, I mean, I know it's available on Amazon. It's available anywhere you can you can buy books. It's an easy search. You just search for the Russian Five. Uh, and on Twitter, he is at Keith Gave uh, G A V E. So, Keith, thanks again so much for uh, for stopping by. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. It's a lot of fun, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat about the book as well. It's, uh, it was a great, great era in Red Wings hockey, and I'm glad. I feel grateful that I was just a, a small part of, uh, of chronicling that story. We have a couple, couple more things to get to. We'll wrap up. Uh, so the first thing is that... Um, Ryan Johansson had apparently been binging Game of Thrones uh, recently, and he decided that he was going to um, wield his hockey stick as if it were a giant sword. And he was a uh, he, he was a person without a tongue. Uh, I'm not going to give any spoilers away. I'm going to try to be <laughs> vague enough that that, uh, that that I won't spoil anything. Vague, but vague and specific. Well, well specific enough so that people that know what I'm talking about will will recognize it, but it won't spoil <laughs> it. So, um, yeah. He, he, if if you if you haven't seen this, you have to watch. You have to watch this replay because there were there's a couple angles of it and. This is always a play where, where number one, you have the idea that a player has to be in control of his own stick. That's just the way it works, right? So if a player gets hit and his and he's you know kind of hanging through the air and his or you know gets gets knocked off balance and his stick comes up and catches another player in the face, that's a high stick. He needs the the players are responsible for being in control of their stick, but um, obviously sometimes there there are mistakes, there are things that happen. You know, actually, the, the example that I just that I just gave would be a really yeah. good example of that. But yeah. if you watch the replay, this was not accidental. This was intentional. He was engaged with uh, Mark Shifley, and he decided that he was going to take his stick over his head and slam it down on Mark Shifley's head slash neck as hard as he could. And the Department of Player Safety gave him two games, which is... In my mind, and anybody who knows me already knows where I'm going with this, utterly ridiculous. This is ridiculously low. Um, if there were any kind of fair standards at all, this should have been double digits. Because it's clear intent to injure. You, you know, so did, did, did you see it that way? Did you, do you think I'm exaggerating a little bit, or what do you think? No, I, no, I don't think you are. The problem is that, 
as I'm watching the the, the view of it now, uh, and I'm watching it from a couple different angles, the, the, they're, they're tied up, and it, and it sucks because it looks like Johansson was using the generic player motion of trying to free yourself from being tangled with another player as a mask for wanting to just yes. just whack the crap out of somebody. So the my, my problem is, like, that's probably where the league was exercising some amount of caution in this ruling because they may be seeing too much of that motion tied to a, hey, I'm just trying to get off this guy and whatever happens, happens. Which, and, and the, what I'm saying is that shouldn't be the case. The, sure. The results you listen, like, yes, you have every right to physically try and create space between you and another player. But, you know, there are obvious actions that are uh, reprehensible, and this is one of them. And given how clear as day it was to, you know, try and be like, okay, so, yeah, he's he's on my back, and then I'm just trying to push off of him. Well, you know, like, whatever the stick lands, the stick lands. It just, it feels like one of those things where, they are looking at it like, well, he had control, but did he? He was trying to push away, you know, I don't know. It's it's really tough to have third-party arbitrators look at these and just, like, assume, you know, ill, Ill intention. And then, like, even when it's clear as day, they still somehow, like, try to, like, not go all the way for, like, the killer thing. Like, I, yeah, I think this definitely, especially if we're... Again, we're talking about another egregious hit to the head, and this isn't obviously your, you know, your everyday run-of-the-mill thing that ends up with guys getting hit in the head because those are mostly like shoulders and arms and all that stuff. But like with a stick, we're talking about that's it, you know it's infinitely lighter, which means it's faster to swing, which means it can cause more damage. There's it's it's really it's really effing the the I'm I'm also very mad and livid. Um, about why this is something that isn't very clearly, you know, m- worthy of more. What like what's two games gonna tell him, right? What's two games gonna tell other people? It's gonna tell them that as long as you're masking this type of move in a, I'm just trying to get space, that the league will probably go leaning on you. That's my takeaway from it, and yeah. it that shouldn't be the takeaway. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we we have one more one more topic to get to. Um, and, uh, Jay, since this is, uh, in the, in the <laughs> Jay section of our oeuvre, let's, uh, you know, let's have you, uh, do the intro to this. What's our, what's our oeuvre word usage count on the, on the history of this podcast? Is that number one? Uh, I think that, maybe. I think that might be number one. Yeah, there we go. I'm glad we could, I'm glad we can notch that counter up to yeah. one from zero. Yeah. Um, so as we are barreling towards it, whether we like it or not, the all-star festivities in San Jose, um, after uh, weird teaser images that looked like they were just tweeting out uh, small snippets of the front of Nirvana's Nevermind. <laughs> I was just going to make that reference, too. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, the, the NHL revealed uh, the all-star game jerseys. Uh, these jerseys are uh, recycled from... Trash in the ocean. Uh, I admire this uh, attempt to be a green initiative to make jerseys out of recycled trash. 
But the weird thing is, if it's out of stock, that means someone is wearing a jersey that could be predominantly old in and out burger wrappers, which <laughs> that can't be fun to have. So um, I they, and they also went with a very monochrome uh, color motif. Uh, it's largely kind of like a steely black and white, kind of a graphic black and white uh, scenario. Um, I don't know if you, Pete. I'm sure you remember the. Um, what is it like the neon ice jerseys a few years ago, where it was like very dark gray and neon red? Mm. I know the Red Wings had one of these. It was it was mm. like a neat it was a neat attempt. All right, yeah. I'll, I'll give it that. I like colors that pop out. But there, I, I forget which Twitter account I saw it on, but they made a very uh, very prescient um, comment about how. The NBA's jerseys, like, they've embraced, like, just going all over the map in terms of color and, and, and embracing, like, the history of their teams, where it's like, hey, for the All-Star game, we're going to wear black and white. It's like, yeah. okay, well, if that doesn't give you any idea of just how weird and backwards thinking this this sort of this this entire league is, I, I don't know what will, but um, I'm, I'm curious to see what... Uh, how well they do. I mean, I, I, I think every once in a while I usually check to see, like, what sort of jersey sales are, are, are doing out there. But I think, okay, I think obviously some teams that have black in their color scheme already probably benefit from this choice more. But I would love to see a return to the uh, late 80s All-Star game, whereas the, back when the league's colors were black, orange, and white, um, those giant whales or Campbell Conference uh, sweaters are always my favorite with the Campbell down the front. And you know, it, was, it, just, it, it looked like there was more color, more vibrance. And that's what I feel like this league is visually lacking. I think it's visually lacking some some vibrance. And I feel like the All-Star Game is a perfect time to like try some stuff out. Have have a little, like, like spread your wings a little bit. Have, you know, like for all the different color schemes that the that the Sharks have in the first place because they have a pretty decent palette. It's like yellow and black and gray and white and whatever, teal. And there's there's stuff to work with. It's just I thought black and white is just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think that they, they could have definitely done a better job with this if they wanted to kind of keep with this, you know, keep with this idea um, or, you know, keep with this this uh, this color scheme that they, that they chose. Because, you know, when I first saw this, I was like, is is that it? Like, there's, like, every every team color is, like, it's just going to be black and white for everybody. And um, somebody had, uh, they actually, they tweeted this to the the Winging and Motown account, and then that that got retweeted by by us. Um, Somebody had taken, basically taken that, and they took the San Jose Teal, and they added it as an accent to each of the jerseys, and it looked infinitely better. So, it, shocking, you know, for like for me, I, I, I mean, it didn't even have to be the teal. They could have added like an accent color, right? So if you're thinking like kind of like Sin City, um, where it's mostly yeah. black and white, but then there's like a little bit of a color somewhere. I think I yeah. think that would have been super interesting. Um, now, the one thing I will say is. I'm going to withhold my final judgment on these until I actually see them on people on the ice because and not and not underwater and not underwater. Um, and, and it's where funny. hockey is typically played. Exactly. Yes. Underwater where hockey is played. Yes. Like if, if there is a hockey, typically if there's a hockey Jersey floating underwater, something has gone terribly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see, like I said, what these actually look like. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, I don't know. Yeah. Right now, I don't like them. <laughs> I do. Op- <laughs> I, I do hold an open mind enough to say that I will wait to render my final judgment until then. So, so, so we'll have to see. Um, but yeah, so, uh, thank you very much to everyone listening for, uh, for coming back for episode 40 of for sure. Um, it is a, uh, a nice bold milestone for us. Um, and, uh, if you want to follow us on social media, you can follow me at P Flynn hockey. You can follow Jay at the roar underscore 24. You can follow our guest Keith gave at Keith gave. Um, and if you're interested in looking for his book, I mean, it's, it's an easy Google search, but I will also put it in the, the show notes. If you're, if you're looking in the app, uh, or I'm sorry, if you're looking, uh, in the article version of the podcast. Yeah. So, so Jay, it's another good show. Treak is bound to break sometime, pal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. You you know what we should do? We should just like do a really bad one on purpose just to kind of get it out of the system. Yeah. Well, as we midlife podcast crisis, there's always that, there's always that bottoming out moment where you just realize you have to just accept that you have to be, you have to be true to yourself and not try and, you know, buy completely into that Corvette. So maybe we, we will just like, Maybe we should roast, like, bring people, like, have people, like, send us voicemail messages with just roasts, hmm. you know? Maybe just to, maybe just to bring us down a little bit. I don't yeah. Know. Who knows? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I, I was thinking we should do, we should do what we joked about, which is our all, um, our full episode where we use, like, really dramatic, uh, like, radio voices. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, up next well, we have an interview, <laughs> a really great interview for, and we can play, like, the noise in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just, like just um, completely devolve into yeah. like a drive time. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> like, and yeah. coming up next, we got a lovely conversation with somebody who feels that the league should fold and then subsequently have all the teams sold to their respective yeah. governors. Coming up next, we've got a very special interview with the guy I almost poured coffee on on the way to work today. Pete? <laughs> yeah, Tom Wilson is at it again. Wow. <laughs> 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 all right. So anyway, thank you for listening. We'll be back at you in two weeks. For sure. 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 For sure.